Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource, where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Hey guys, welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast with me, Dan the Fitness Man. If you're new to our podcast, thanks for checking us out. We are all about hard work, delayed gratification, and staying accountable to yourself. We're about chasing that dream of elk hunting, but really leveraging it so everything else in our life is better. Today's guest is Jake Moppin. He is out of southeastern Idaho. I actually met him elk hunting this year, and we hit it off. Uh, got his contact information, and I knew I was going to bring him on the podcast, which we finally did today. Uh, there's a lot of great information here on not only elk hunting, but mountain lion, bear hunting, and just really getting – this guy's hardcore. He does it all from shed hunting to antelope hunting to running hounds. Uh, he's always in the outdoors, and he's a very successful elk hunter. So he's got a lot of cool tactics that are very unique and definitely new to me, stuff that I don't know about. So uh, pretty cool. What we're going to do is uh, break down the elk shape camp season. Uh, we've had a lot of signups, and so we're getting close to that point where we might start uh, seeing sold-out signs on certain camps. So let me just catch you up to speed real quick on elk shape camps. They are a two-and-a-half-day type Friday through Sunday camp where we're going to basically shorten your elk hunting learning curve. Well, if you've already killed an elk, you still would benefit from coming. Maybe you haven't experienced consistent success year after year on public land, or maybe you're completely brand new. I want to go ahead and take your game to the next level and discover what you're weak at. Where are your weaknesses, chinks in your armor when it comes to elk hunting? Is it your fitness? Well, that will get exposed. Is it your elk vocalizations that will get exposed? Is it your knowledge of elk behavior? Do you know how to use the computer and cyber scout from afar? Do you know how to get the tags that you need in your hand? There is strategy for all those. So we cover all that, but we also cover archery. So if you are an archer, you're in luck. We're going to break down your shot process, your shot execution, and check your setup. Make sure that it, you have the necessary equipment on your bow and that it is super tuned. That is very, very important. And then we're going to show you how to do perfect practice, shoot with a high heart rate under duress. And really, it's just there's so much to elk hunting. It's very difficult to just show up and have success. You really have to put in the year-round work. That's what I found, at least, in my 19 years of elk hunting is that the harder I work, the more success I have, which I love. So camp number one is in Seminole, Texas, February 5th through the 7th. This camp's probably dear and near to my heart because the owner Corbin is giving away a Matthews V3 
decked out, super tuned by him to one of the participants at that camp. And he's also thrown in a $150 hotel voucher. And there's six hotels in that town. So no matter, you know, you need to book your hotel right away. Uh, and he will give you $150 towards your hotel. That camp is going to be awesome. And I think we have seven spots left. Nashville, Tennessee, that's going to be at the Archery Den. We're going to be basically hanging out with Logan, one of the owners. My buddy Matt Hewitt, who's won the CrossFit Games on Rich Fronin's team several times. Uh, my buddy Willie from Cinnamon Creek is coming over to help with the tuning. And we're going to be in Nashville, Tennessee, February 26th through the 28th. Then we go to Marysville, Ohio at Attaboy's Archery and CrossFit 184. That's March 12th through the 14th. That's going to be an exceptional Midwest camp. We're going to help a lot of people plan their elk hunts. Then we're going to Boise, Idaho, March 19th through the 21st at Dead on Archery. Uh, that's the best archery shop in that town. And we're going to CrossFit Boise, the original CrossFit in Boise. And TJ's the owner. Elknut's going to be there. Dirk Durham, the bugler, is going to be at all my camps. We're going to teach you how to do all those plays, all those sounds. Then we go to Lancaster Archery Supply in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, March 26th through the 28th. And we're working out at CrossFit Uncompromised. Uh, that facility is going to be the best facility to do our camp. Um, we can take up to 25 athletes. We have, I think, 13 spots left. So jump on that, all you bow hunters in Pennsylvania that want to come hunt elk. And then we go to Denver, Colorado at No Limits Archery, Anchor CrossFit, April 9th through the 11th, Phil Mendoza. Need I say more? That place is awesome. That's home of the Alpha Challenge. We will be doing the Alpha Challenge. We will be... We might even have Aaron Snyder come back over and hang out with us. It's going to be awesome. And then we finish in Ogden, Utah at the Baku Center. They have their own archery center, April 23rd through the 25th. And all those camps, dates, locations, and registration can be found at elkshape.com. All right, guys, let's get into the podcast. We're talking to Jake Moppin. We're dropping knowledge bombs. Enjoy the podcast. I'll catch you at the end of the show. Hey, morning, Dan. How's it going? Oh, it's good. It's real good. Uh, crazy Monday. How about you? Oh, about the same. Uh, had a little bit of work last night, so got off work this morning, and and yeah, not uh, just getting ready to do this thing, and then I'll probably take a little nap and then be at it again tonight. Oh man, where do you work at? Uh, so I work at uh, it's called Idaho National Laboratory. It's a uh, it's a place where we do uh, nuclear research. Oh yeah, does uh, I think my buddy Will Hoffman works there. Oh okay, yeah, and and he might. It's it's like uh, there's probably maybe six thousand people that work there over three or four different areas. You know, three or four different locations and stuff. So there's a lot of people that work there. It's just uh, you hardly know any of them. Oh yeah, well that's good. Uh, and you're south east Idaho. Yep. Yeah. Southeast Idaho, uh, right by Idaho Falls. Okay, cool. How long have you been? Are you like, is that where you've born and bred? Yep. Yeah. That's where I was born and raised. I, I only live probably about five miles from where I grew up right now. So yeah, built, uh, you know, built a house just a little ways away. I actually built a house right in the middle of, um, my mom's place and my dad's place kind of even ground so that be equal distance from both of them that's pretty special especially for the kiddos now you have a couple kids how many kids do you got jake yep i have uh i've got two boys one 
One's going to turn nine tomorrow, and then the other one's six. Okay, so you're busy, man. That's full-time deal. Yeah, two two boys. It's it's crazy. And you you run an Instagram page. Um, I gotta pull it up. I think it's called Ascent uh, uh, Ascent Outdoors or something. Okay, what is Ascent Outdoors? Is it just like your own little thing with your homies, or is it like uh, is it a brand? Or what is it? So yeah, it's ba- it's basically just a small thing that I put together um, with a bunch of buddies of mine just to. I don't know, just to kind of give like some sort of group, some sort of, you know, recognition that, that it doesn't matter who you are, you know, you've always got, you've always got friends to hunt with and, and, you know, just, a just a small group that includes everybody. Mm, very, that's cool. I like inclusivity. I guess I, my question mainly was like trying to figure out what your, day-to-day kind of lifestyle is you know you work at the nuclear plant you have kiddos you split time uh with your ex like how do you balance all that and hunt as much as you do oh man that's a that's a tough one like i mean it's basically it's go 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 and uh yeah you just you just i mean like a lot of people I kind of work to hunt, not, not live to work. And so, yeah, I basically work as much as I can so that I can play as much as I can. And, and plus, uh, you know, have time with my kids and be able to su- support them and their hobbies. And, and, uh, yeah, it's just an every, everyday kind of grind. Yeah, it is a grind and it's like a juggling act. It really is like a lot of hustle. Um, uh, the boys are getting up there, man. So what's Idaho's rules on? When can they start hunting, um, hunter safety, all that kind of stuff? So recently, it used to be 12 years old is when uh, youth could start hunting. But I think it was about four years ago they changed it to 10. Okay. And uh, then they made it when youth were eight years old. They could get what was called a hunter passport. And basically, you know, they have to be with an adult. They can only um, – shoot small game and predators so they can coyote hunt they can you know raccoon hunt rabbit hunt stuff like that when they're eight years old to kind of prepare them get them ready for when they do turn 10 and they are starting to hunt big game deer you know elk antelope okay that's pretty exciting my kids are six and four and uh, they both are pretty well educated on what daddy does um a lot more than I was when I was their age. Um, I'm a little more into it than say my dad was growing up, but that's who got me in the outdoors was my dad just following his footsteps, grouse hunting, and then begging him to let me go deer hunting with him just to watch and observe. And, you know, I think I got my hunter safety when I was 10 and the rest is history. How, how did you get your start? Um, so I basically the same way, uh, watch my dad grow up. He, so my dad, he has 12 or 13 mules, and uh, the, pretty much my whole time growing up, he, w- he was guiding for an outfitter. And so, I mean, I would go in, I mean, I was probably like six, six years old, taking trips into the outfitter camps, you know, packing mm-hmm. hay and, and tents and supplies and, and 
basically did that until I was old enough to start hunting. And then when I was old enough to start hunting, you know, he obviously started taking the time off in the fall. He hunted, but, um, he stuck to more, he stuck to more, um, predator type hunting December, you know, for lions and, uh, then in the spring for bears and stuff like that. So he didn't get a whole lot of, um, big game hunting in just because he was too busy working for the outfitter and, and doing stuff like that. But as soon as I turned 12 years old, that's when he kind of, kind of started doing a little bit less for the outfitter. And, and he and I started doing a lot more hunt together. We, you know, we did some, some, uh, camps where we'd take the mules in probably four to five miles, you know, archery camps and, and just get away from people. And you're talking, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but, but 15 years ago is, you know, about when it was, I'm, I'm 33. So roughly 15 years ago. And it's just, it's, it's amazing the type of experience that you could have just 15 years ago, being a, you know, 12 year old kid in the, in the mountains, packed in on horses and just, uh, just up there for a week, ready to hunt and spend time with your, with your dad. Mm, Yeah. Well, there's so much to talk to you about. I'm excited to have you on. Um, you, I met you in the mountains, uh, actually this year and I was looking for my buddy. Actually, I knew a storm was coming and I knew he was set out to hunt solo and, um, I didn't think he knew about the storm that was coming, kind of hitting, and uh, I was just trying to find him. and And it's not like this guy doesn't know what he's doing. But uh, long story short, I ran into you and got to chat with you for a minute or two, and I got to see your bull. You had just killed a bull, and just got it back to camp. And uh, just I remember going, man this guy's legit. I got to, I got to get him on my podcast. And so I just kind of tucked it away in my memory bank and then circled back with you because of the internet. So easy to track people down. And here we are. Um, so thanks for coming on, man. Um, I want to talk about Idaho 2021. I want to talk about hound hunting because you're a houndsman. I want to talk about bears with hounds and cats and, um, antelope and elk and Mule deer, all that stuff. I love it. I, I can't get enough of it. Uh, first off, Idaho is making some changes for probably the better, in my opinion. We are different. You are a resident of Idaho. I am not. Now, I own a house in Idaho, but that doesn't matter. I don't live there full time, so I can't be a resident. Um, and I'm begging my wife to move to Idaho every day, but ain't going to happen, folks. So, the reason why I say that is Idaho made some changes that I think are positive. I want to go over them now. This podcast won't air till next Monday, so it'll be kind of be after the fact a little bit. So sorry I didn't give everybody a heads up. But uh, so tonight is uh, December first at midnight. I will be going online and buying my 2021 hunting license as a non-resident. And then tomorrow, December 1st at 9 a.m. my time, 10 a.m. your time, I will be going online and trying to buy an elk tag over the counter for Idaho. And I've never really had to do that. But they've made some now like new positive changes to where they're allocating a certain amount of non-resident tags to each zone. For you as a resident, how stoked are you about that change? Um. You know, it it was kind of a surprise to me because I've heard Fishing Game talk about doing it for years, but nobody ever thought that they would do it just because 
there's a possibility of, you know, lost revenue and stuff like that when you actually make people have to have to pick a tag and pick a zone and then buy it on December 1st, which a lot of people are, you know, could still be in the field hunting right now. And so, I mean, for me, I think it's, I think it's going to be a real positive thing because there is some units that I've hunted before that, um, you definitely do see hunter crowding. You definitely do see, um, people talking about certain units on Eastman's or, you know, um, some of the big social media platforms. And it seems like those units, the next couple of years, they really get hit hard. And yeah, there's a statewide quota, but there's not, uh, per se a quota per zone. So not that it would ever happen. You could end up with say 50% of the non-resident tags sold in one zone. If, if that zone was promoted by a certain person or something like that. So I think that it's going to be really good. I think that it's probably going to disperse the hunters throughout the state, which is not only going to help um, residents, it's going to help non-residents too, because you're going to, you're going to get to see both sides. You're going to get to see less hunting pressure and probably have a more quality hunt and be able to see, you know, bigger game. Mm, Yeah. I don't know, but I would never underestimate hunters as serious as I am. Um, to be logged on and trying to buy their hunting license December 1st. Um, now for years I've tried to get the diamond Creek zone tag and I'm not worried about putting that on a podcast because it's so hard. Like I think everyone, it's not a secret. Like everyone's tried to get that tag and I've never gotten it online. It's just, you, you, you put it in your cart, you try to check out, you hit refresh about a million times, you stay up till three in the morning and then you give up. So I'm not... I guess I'm used to that part, but like now I'm having to do that for just regular old run of the mill zones. And I don't know if I'm going to have an issue getting a tag tomorrow. We'll find out, but I'm certainly going to try to get that tag, be one of the whatever, um, people that gets it. But Idaho has like 12,000 plus non-resident elk tags. And the way I understand it and correct me if I'm wrong. 9,000 ish of those are going to be for just non guided, do it yourself, non residents like myself. And then about 3,000 of them are going to be set aside for non residents to go with outfitters. Um, and then Idaho breaks up their state into zones. So, like where I live, there's the panhandle, that's units one through nine. There'll be 600 and change tags that are allocated for non-residents so once those 600 plus people buy their elk tag let's say an a tag which is primarily archery elk once those 600 tags get sold no one else can go in and buy a non-resident panhandle elk tag and they've done that for every zone and you can log on to idaho fishing games website and see the allocations this is all new. This is unprecedented. They've never done this before, but it will disperse people. Um, do you think uh, tomorrow a lot of people are doing what I'm doing? Um, honestly, I think that it came so fast this year and just barely came out. You know, the, these changes just barely came out a couple of weeks ago. I think there's probably a lot of people who aren't up to date with it. And it's there's you're probably going to have a fair number of people who are up to date and are going to get on at 10 and try to buy their tags. and but you're going to have a certain number of people who haven't heard about it that 
are going to miss out on it. And then what's going to happen is they're going to go to buy their tag, you know, March, April, May or whatnot. And they're going to get on. They're going to be clicking through all the zones where they've hunted and, you know, some of the better zones in Idaho. And they're going to realize that the tags are sold out. And so if they still want to have an opportunity, that's probably going to push those people into some of the other zones that might be, you know, some backcountry zones, some limited access zones, some of some of the the not the top not the top priority zones in Idaho. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll find out tomorrow. Um, it's one thing that I think doesn't really get talked about, but I'm sure you're aware is that your state is exploding in growth. And it's because it's kind of a a red state, uh, last man standing type of a state where, you know, if you're conservative at all, or if you're just tired of the nonsense, people are trying to get to Wyoming and trying to get to Idaho. And that increases your resident hunting population considerably. And there is no real limitations on how many residents can buy elk tags. Do you, in your circle, does that get brought up at all? I mean, I've definitely heard of it um, brought up a lot more now than it ever has because it seems like once you make a big change, like with the non-resident tag allocations, then everybody starts talking about, well, what about this and what about that? And and that's definitely been a big one that's been brought up, um, that how Idaho is growing. And so, yeah, you might be able to limit the non-residents, but the non-resident tag numbers, the 14,000 or, or whatever it was for the past, how many ever years, those, those haven't changed. So like if you're seeing increasing hunting pressure in your area, it could just be because there's actually more residents hunting in Idaho. Yeah. Now, since we're on the subject of hunting pressure, um, and we can't give away where you hunt, um, because it's just not a good idea. Uh, this podcast does see a lot of a handful of downloads a month. So, um, what was the hunting pressure like for you this year in your elk season? So this this year for me, it was it was pretty crazy. But for for this whole 2020 year, it didn't seem like it mattered what I did. You know, shed hunting, elk hunting, bear hunting in the spring. I mean, it seemed like that there was just more people in the wilderness it seemed like you know people were off um or working from home or or whatnot and it it allowed people to either flex their time one way or another to where some of the weekdays when i would normally not see people in the hills i was seeing people in the hills and and that kind of transferred right over from shed season into elk season and i i mean i've seen a lot more people this year than what i've seen in the past and Granted, a lot of them were non-residents, um, a lot of North Dakota, Wisconsin, um, and different states, uh, Montana, different states like that. But, uh, I mean, I, I won't say it was more than what I've seen in the past, but it seemed like it was more just because maybe more people were out at the same time or whatnot. But there, where I was, there definitely was quite a bit more elk hunting pressure that I seen this year than any other year. Yeah, man. Like I did an elk shaped camp in Wisconsin this year. And I would say, uh, we capped those at 20 people and that one was sold out. 
and I think only a couple were going to Colorado. And now, granted, these are a lot of newbie elk hunters that come to my camps. They're just trying to learn everything they can about elk hunting to have more success. And then there was a couple that were going to Montana, and then the entire camp, the rest of them, were going to Idaho, specifically your neck of the woods. Oh, wow. And I, and I even ran into a couple guys at the archery shop that were not at my camp. And they they recognized and said hello to me and stuff, and we got to talking. And they were going <laughs> to the same place you hunt. And I was like, wow, there's uh, the Wisconsin guys. They're coming out swinging. So I do think that it's Idaho's got, you know, decent elk numbers, really good season dates, and it's fairly close to those bordering Midwest states. And it's a destination location. Um and it's beautiful, but you know, in, in your neighborhood. So I can see that. Uh, so how do you adapt your hunting style when the woods are crowded? Cause there was COVID crowding without a doubt. I hunted three States this year and I couldn't get away from people to save my life. And I actually started adjusting my hunting tactics based on what people would do, which I, I've done in the past, but not, not to the degree that I did this year. How did you evolve your game? See, I, I think it's, it was basically the same way for me. Um, you know, most of the time we're able to hit a bunch of canyons the way that we hunt. We basically camp in kind of a central location and then we go from canyon to canyon. Um, very seldomly with the area that I hunt, um, could you backpack in and stay for, you know, three days just because day one, maybe two days in there, you've pretty much seen what's in there. And, and so the way that we hunt is we just go from Canyon to Canyon And a lot of that this year, you could, you, you used to be able to go, you know, and you could bugle ridges, you could hit one Canyon, hike up it mile, mile and a half, hike back down, hit another Canyon. And the biggest thing that we that we seen this year is a lot of the elk that you could get to talk in previous years. They were super quiet this year, and some to the point, you know, come mid season, like if you if you had a bull talking and you got close and you cow called to him or anything just to relocate him, I mean that was it. Like you wouldn't hear another word. So our tactics basically went to to figure out where they're at, you know, sneak in close and try to get a shot or figure out where, where they're at and where they're watering and sit water. Um, one, one, I mean, that's one of the biggest things that changed for us this year. We started doing a lot more ambush style hunting or spot and stock style hunting, just because a lot of the elk were, they were quieter. They, they had heard you know, multiple people throughout a week or throughout a two week period. And they were just, they were on high alert. They, I mean, I guess that's the only way that I can put it. They were, they were not like normal elk that you could, that you could cow call to relocate a bull or something like that. And to, to one certain extent, I cow called and cows left and, and my buddy looked at me and he's like, he's like, are you, you sure you know what you're doing? And I was like, yeah, I've never, never had that happen before. And mm-hmm. I think it was just cause they were, you know, being 
over hunted or worked day after day by different people. Yeah. Well said, you know, Joel Turner is a really good friend of mine, very good elk vocalization guy. He's competed on the world world stage and <clears throat> by day he's cop, but he's also an archery coach and, um, he's helped out at my camps quite a bit and he really preaches to not make cow calls even in a regular time of year. He doesn't think females like females. He, he does a lot of uh, correlation to humans and elk and, uh, he just doesn't think that cows like other cows. And so he says the safest sound to make, whether you're hunting an overpopulated area or whatever, is to to make calf calls. Calf sounds are the safest bet for bulls and cows because um, you got a paternal maternal instinct to potentially vocalize back or at least you know be think it's safe. And so I could appreciate that angle if you needed to vocalize to relocate to maybe produce a calf sound. But I'm with you, man. I have killed majority of my elk ambushing or spot and stock, sneaking in. Now, I will vocalize to locate elk if I can't glass them up. But my hierarchy is glass, visual, and then uh, vocalization specifically probably in the first hour in the morning or the last hour of the day and then at night. And when I say at night, I mean like, okay, we can't find any elk. Let's go ahead and stay up and keep bugling for the next three hours. Or let's get up at two or three in the morning and bugle for the first three hours of dark until it gets light and try to locate these elk. They're a little bit more likely to bugle back in the dark. Um, they haven't had encounters with humans, like you said, to where they get educated. But man, I think you're onto something. And that sucks for people like Jason Phelps, my best, one of my best buddies who owns an elk calling company. Um, I still think you need to bring elk calls out with you, but it's just, especially for us solo elk hunters, vocalization's not what it used to be. Um, so when you sit water and stuff like that, um, is there a time of day that is the magical time? If you could look back historically, like, is it an all day sit or what's the prime times? So, uh, what I've noticed about sitting water, they're kind of like, they're kind of like anything else. I mean, most of the elk that I've had an opportunity to harvest over water or even see over water are there in the mornings and they might only be there for, you know, the first 10 minutes of daylight and then they're headed back into the timber or headed back into, you know, a feeding area or something like that. Um, and they're usually there probably about 30 minutes for, before dark. So what I've noticed is, you know, if you're if you're going to sit water, the first you sit for an hour in the morning or something like that, and then probably three, two to three hours in the evening, depending on, you know, how hot it is. Of course, if it's a little bit hotter, I might get in, you know, and sit maybe three hours three hours before dark on a really hot day because you ne you never know when, you know, a bull's going to just get thirsty three o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon. But I've never really set water for elk for, for a long period of time, but the camera data usually shows that the elk are there, you know, in, in the early morning and then in the evening. And so that's when I've found the best times to sit are. It seems like seems like I've, I've set, I've hunted some water spots that are better 
in the morning and it could be because of thermals or you know the way that the elk are traveling through the area or where they're headed to and then i've also hunted some that are you know hands down better at night just for the same reason they might be on they might be in a spot where the elk are traveling through to get down to a feeding area or something like that that they're going to feed at all night but yeah i think each each water hole has its own has its own um characteristics of when the elk are going to be there based on its location yeah that makes a lot of sense so like if you were going to do a morning sit and you know that it's the first 10 minutes how early do you get into your ground blind tree stand whatever you've made um so usually usually i like to be in about 30 to 45 minutes before before light but i've even done that sometimes where you basically have elk at the water hole before you know as you're hiking in so sometimes you're you might bump an elk or something off in the dark and they they don't know what you are unless they've smelled you and so a lot of the times they'll hang out they'll come back um or or else you know just them being around the water hole another elk will see them and be like hey you know it must be safe to go down and get a drink there's another elk within 100 yards of it so and then they'll come down and drink but but I, I think I've only I've only had I maybe have only killed maybe one one bull in the mornings hunting hunting water holes in the mornings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what's better for elk a ground blind that kind of can keep your scent pretty condensed or elevated? I've never killed an elk out of either. Um, I think it would be awesome to shoot one from above just because. I mean, they can't be like whitetail where I just, I just don't see them being as reactive as a whitetail. Um, but what's your preference? So, so honestly, I've never, I've never hunted elk out of a ground blind. Um, I had one ground blind on an antelope water hole one time and it was just the craziest thing. Elk just happened to be coming to the same water hole that, that the antelope were watering at. And, uh, I think I'd killed an antelope. So I wasn't sitting for antelope and a buddy of mine, Jordan was sitting in this water hole. He actually, he had his boy with him. Uh, I think his boy was probably five at the time. And, uh, he was sitting in the ground blind. They might've even had a little buddy heater, you know, to, to try to stay a little bit warm. Cause it's real, real crisp in the mornings. And then it starts cooling down in the evenings. And, and he actually ended up killing a bull off of that water hole out of a ground blind. And he said the elk, really didn't even know that he was there you know didn't see him didn't smell him didn't had no clue he was there so obviously the ground blind if you have a spot for one they work really well but most of the water holes that that i'll occasionally sit either have tree stands or they'll be in like kind of a ravine and i'll just uh like sit on a side hill like sit in yeah sit in a little brush pocket and and i've actually um one of the bigger bulls that I've killed about a three, I don't know. He's like a three twenty bull. I killed him off of the ground sitting just in like a little sagebrush pocket. And I mean, that was, that was one of the cool experiences ever, you know, having a, having a bull come into a water hole full rut, uh, just bugling like crazy and being on the ground and, and shooting them, you know, kind mm-hmm. of a, kind of an ambush type thing. But, um, I've also had a lot of luck out of tree stands. It seems like, like you say, they're, the elk are not like whitetails at all. They come in, they're they're looking to do one thing, get a drink, and 
they come in they're you know they still have all their senses they're still checking the wind they're still listening for sounds listening for uh platforms popping or whatnot but they seem like they when they come in they're a little little more docile than whitetails and and so i i prefer a tree stand but i mean i'll i'm i'm an opportunist i'll 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 either sit in a tree stand or sit in a ground blind or sit on a side hill you know what whatever's gonna be the most efficient way to to kill a nice elk so when you're looking for like water sources in the mountains is it a matter of putting out enough cameras or is it a matter of reading sign because i could see you finding like say you find a pretty good wallow but maybe two miles up further up the canyon you got a little seep do you have to really trust reading sign or putting cameras out? And furthermore, when do you put cameras out or do you leave them out year round? Uh, would love to hear your information on that. So, so I think that cameras are one of the most useful pieces of equipment a guy can have. Um, we usually, uh, me and my buddy Chance and Brandon, we usually put cameras out. Um, July is when we put them out. We put them out, you know, around the, the first of July is when we like putting them out. Even though some of the elk that we're going to be hunting at those spots where the cameras are, they're not there until September. So basically what we've found is if you put, if you put your cameras out and put them out over in a spread out um, area, you know, from this, just for instance, we had cameras so this year we had some cameras on one water hole we had some cameras on another water hole that was a mile down and then we had cameras on a water hole that was probably seven seven miles away as a crow flies and what we found is that on one camera the elk were using that primarily in the early part of july and into august and then I don't know what it was, maybe maybe the pressure when people started antelope hunting, because th- this water hole's only probably a half a mile off of a off of a dirt road. It's not very far off of a dirt road. And from the pressure of maybe more people driving around looking for antelope or people early season scouting for elk, those elk moved to a water hole that was another mile and a half to two miles back in a canyon. And then they were on that water hole for, for a long time. And then from there, once the they were on that water hole clear until probably September 7th or 8th, and we've kind of noticed this in the years past, then those, those bulls that were on that water hole, they moved clear up the range um, seven, it's either seven or eight miles as a crow flies. And we got some of the same bulls that we had on that early water hole in August in the first part of September on another water hole seven to eight miles as a crow flies away on a different water hole once you know rutting started happening they had scraped their velvet and they were ready to breed so that just goes to show you that those elk can be in one one spot for the early part of the season and then come mid-season they can be you know up to eight miles away and this wasn't just like we picked out a six point and we're like, that's the same six point. We think it's the same six point. It's, it's like, we have a couple elk that we know that they're the exact same elk. Like one elk, he's a big seven point on one side and then he's got no horn on the other. He's just got like a little, a little ball or 
little club type thing. <laughs> so like when those elk move that far, you and you get a picture, you know it's you know for a hundred percent it's the same elk, like just because there's not two of them out there like that. That's pretty cool to kind of get that data and to study up because elk are so nomadic and they do adapt and they don't like pressure, whether it comes in the form of people driving, looking for antelope or people that smell human scent in their area where they've been summering. I like to pick your brain on summering bulls a little bit because I think that um, there's some nuance in there. Some units in Idaho open August 30th, others open September 6th for archery. Uh, Montana opens up generally the first Saturday in September, uh, Oregon, usually the last Saturday and it just changes. You just got to follow the regs, but, uh, summering bulls, bachelor bulls, uh, what have you seen? Do you see bigger, more mature bulls hang out with bigger and more mature bulls? Do you see an eclectic mix of rags up to an older bull just varies? And then how long are they friends, compadres, and then when do they just decide it's time and they go on the search for ladies? So what what I've seen in my area is that basically a bachelor group of bulls could be anywhere from a branch antler bull clear up to a big mature six point. When they're in those bachelor groups, they don't really care how big the other bulls are that are with them is, is what I've noticed. Um, I know there is people that say, you know, only mature bulls hang out with mature bulls and smaller branch antler bulls hang out with smaller branch antler bulls. But for me, I haven't seen that. I've seen if there's one, if there's a mature six point there, there could just as well be a branch antler, smaller, you know, raghorn with him. And, um, it seems like, it seems like those bulls hang out together until about the 5th to 7th of September. And then between, between August, I've, I've seen bulls on camera shedding about August 17th or August 15th is about the earliest that I've seen them shedding. And then I've seen some bulls, you know, into some smaller bulls that are into the 1st of September before they shed. But it seems like the 5th of September is that magic cutoff is when the, the bigger bulls, they're shedded out. Um, most of the smaller bulls are shedded out, but maybe a couple of little ones. And that's when they decide, you know, it's time to go on the search for cows. And one spot in particular, um, it's kind of one of those little honey holes where there will be a bachelor group of bulls in there pretty much every single year. And running the camera data, there's hardly ever any cows. I think in probably like a 10-year period, I've got one picture of a cow in there is it. just And it was just like a random middle of September. You know, I think somebody must have bumped them from somewhere or something and they ended up there. But in that area, it's like clockwork. You, you pretty much know that you have the first five days of the season to hunt that spot. And then after that, you will not see an elk in there. Like you won't see, you won't see elk in there. You won't have elk on the cameras. I mean, it just, it just like goes to like a ghost town, but, and so that's, that, that's what I found in my area is that about the 5th of September is a cutoff when those bulls don't like hanging out together anymore and they actually go on the search. I gotcha. So when you're setting up on these early season bulls, um, 
when do you bring your tree stands in? Do you put them on your back? Do you use your dad's stock? And have you considered messing with tree saddles? Um, so I've never messed with a tree saddle. Just, uh, I, I, I just don't know a whole lot about them. I mean, I think that they would be a sweet option because they're super packable, super lightweight. I mean, they're basically a hang and hunt type thing. And, uh, and then you go from there, you know, and, uh, some, some of the spots, depending on if it's as far as hanging tree stands, some of the spots, if it's a, if it's a pretty populated spot, like maybe we know that this is a spot that somebody could find on Onyx or somebody could, you know, stumble across, it's close enough to a road. We'll hang those stands the same time that we hang the cameras. Usually, usually first part of July. And then some of the spots that are a little bit deeper, um, we'll hang those stands in, you know, uh, mid August, like maybe the weekend of the 10th, we usually go out and, um, do some antelope scouting because our antelope opens on the 15th. And so we'll just kind of use that weekend for checking elk trail cameras and, and hanging stands in the best locations. And, and we pack the stands in, um, the, the area where I'm at, it's kind of, the roads aren't really good enough to be hauling horse trailers in and around and, you know, back and forth from one canyon to the next. So it's just easy enough just to throw a, throw a gorilla, a 25 pound stand on your backpack and hike it in. That's awesome. Yeah, man, you might need to look into the tree saddles. I'm going to, I'm going to be doing the same. Um, I think that's pretty new idea, but I think, you know, some of those setups with the sticks and your saddle platform could be at seven or eight pounds total and then you could potentially even if you didn't want to sit water you could probably sit transition and potentially see elk even earlier um, especially if you're doing an evening set and you're worried about the elk coming in in the dark maybe you could inch closer and still get good thermals to be catch them in that transition from bedding to water as they're, you know, whatever, but I love it. I love it, man. Let's uh, switch gears. So, you know, you're not just an elk hunter. You're quite a, you're a houndsman. So we have to talk predators. Um, and we got to talk about your elk area. The last question I'm going to ask you about that is elk numbers in your area, since you've been hunting same ground for over a decade, what would you say? Like, let's pretend you're the biologist because you have so many days in the field and you run cats, you run dogs, you hunt coyotes out there, you hunt antelope out there, you're in the woods a lot. So if you were the biologist, what kind of status would you give the elk herd? Uh, staying the same on the decline? Uh, do you have wolf issues? Where, are you, where do you see your elk numbers? Are they doing better? Are they fluctuating? Um, I'd love to hear your take. All right. So yeah, on that, I would say, um, over the time that I've, that I've been hunting there, the elk numbers are probably on the incline, um, mainly the bull numbers, because I think it was about eight years ago. There used to be a, when you bought your general tag, uh, resident or non-resident, they had, you know, the A tag that went from August 30th to September 30th. And then they had a B tag that, or, uh, they had the second part of the A tag, sorry, that was, um, it was like October 20th to November 1st for cows with the muzzleloader. Well, then they also had another option 
where you could you could uh, shoot a spike from, let's say, October 25th to November 5th or something like that, like a 10-day period. And th- this is rifle hunting, so a mm. lot of guys would go in. A lot of guys would they would buy the tag because there was like basically three options. You could archery hunt, you could muzzleloader hunt, or you could rifle hunt spike. And so for a long period of time, uh, a lot of spikes got shot out of that area. And as, mm-hmm. as you know, when, when you're killing spikes, you're killing the next generation of bulls. And so the bull numbers were really low. And, and, uh, and I think it was one of the units that, that people were kind of discouraged from because you would go out there and you would see, you know, 50 cows and you might see two bulls or something like that. And you wouldn't see any spikes. And so they ended up, they got enough feedback from, you know, the public, the hunters and everything where they totally did away with the spike hunt. They made it just archery in, uh, archery in September and then muzzleloader in, um, October, November timeframe. Well, what that did is over the years, over the past eight or 10 years, however long it's been since they did that, the bull numbers have come up dramatically. And so, and I think, I think with that, you know, um, it's helped out the population, both bulls and cows. And, and, uh, yeah, so I would say that the elk numbers are either they're, they're on the incline. They're either, you know, steady or above what they were when I first started hunting there to, to increasing. Yeah, that's really exciting to hear. I think Montana does it really well. You cannot shoot a spike on a general tag, Colorado, very similar. A bull's got to have a certain amount of points on a side. I think it's four on one side. Um, I like that a lot. And then my state, Washington has all these hunts where you can kill a spike only in these trophy units. And it's the most, I think it's so ridiculous to even have that as a concept where I draw a blues tag in Washington state and I go down there and I know it's pretty much a once in a lifetime elk tag. And then I got a bunch of, and I don't, just a bunch of people hunting spikes only and they're kind of interfering in my hunt and they're calling in big bulls and they think it's awesome, but they can't shoot them. It's ridiculous. And you're killing the next generation. So, um, I've killed two spikes before in Idaho. They're really good eating bulls, but, uh, I just assume shoot a cow with that mindset when I'm trying to fill the freezer. So anyways, uh, let's talk about wolves because you have hounds I don't think you have the wolf numbers that I do up in my neighborhood at the Panhandle, um, but you also you can't see you don't even use binoculars where I live. There's nowhere to glass. It's all timbered, and the wolves make a pretty good living. Um, how have you seen wolves um, down where you're at? There's a lot of ranching. There's a lot of cattle. Uh, there's you know probably some good checks and balances, but at the end of the day, wolves will be wolves. How have you? What's your observations? So with the wolves, um, you know, obviously they're, they're growing over the whole state. And when you have that happen, when you have a wolf population growing in one area, what it's going to do just, it's going to expand because those wolves, they're territorial. They're just like anything else. They're going to move out of the, out of wherever the place is that they're, they're born and, they're going to move to another place to try to get their own, their own home, home ground or whatnot. So up where I'm at, the wolves aren't terrible, but there is a pretty big pack of them, um, on the one side of the road. 
uh, a friend of mine was hunting in there. He was hunting. It was like opening weekend, and we knew that there was wolves in there. We've heard them in the years before, years past. We've seen the sign, um, but they've never they've never really been um, in a position where you could hunt them or where you could you could even kill them. They they were pretty smart. They would stay in the timber patches, and you know you'd hear them howl at night. And for for anybody who knows the difference in a coyote howling and a wolf howling it's it's two totally different animals like you can tell right off the bat when a wolf howls you know you hear a lot of guys say oh i heard some wolves howling up here and when in all reality it was it was you know coyotes but so we we heard heard them howl we knew that they were there and this year um we had a fresh little bit of fresh snow on the first or second day and some friends of mine who were hunting uh just a little ways away from me they actually seen where a pack of three or four wolves had killed a, a moo calf um, and had actually eaten on it for a day or two. And they went back. They actually switched their whole they switched their whole whole game plan from elk elk hunting. They didn't have rifles with them, but they ended up setting up on this kill that night. I think it was the second night of elk season or something, maybe the 31st of August or the first September. And, and they actually sat there and tried killing some of these wolves with their bows and they had them come in, but um, my friend Tim said that the closest they got was about 80, 80 or 90 yards before they winded them and, you mm. know, ended up taking off. So so the the wolf population is definitely growing. It's definitely it's definitely getting getting worse throughout the state. But in in my little area, it's not too bad right now. There's the one group. And then when I was uh, when I was bear baiting this spring. Um, it was shortly after the take season closed. So shortly after, um, I think it would have been in June, like June 15th or something. I finally did get one picture of a wolf on my side of the Valley on one of my bear baits. And, and that's a first I've never, you know, I've seen like one set of tracks over there, but I've never got any pictures. So now that I'm, now that I've got a picture, you know, I can a hundred percent verify that they're there. They're, they obviously must be setting up a residence because it's, I mean, it's pretty hard to just catch one wolf on camera one time that was just passing through. Oh yeah, for sure. So have you had any luck hunting wolves? Oh, so actually I have, it was two years ago. Um, I did, uh, up in a little town just North of me, they do a coyote slash wolf derby and, they basically, it's a weekend type thing, you know, $20 entry fees, stuff like that. And, um, people come from all over the state to do it, to do this coyote wolf derby. And it's, it's mainly calling, but some guys do, you know, drive around and shoot coyotes or whatnot. Well, anyways, being the, being the line hunter that I am, I'm always looking for tracks anywhere that I'm going. Like I'll be driving down a road, you know, yep. and all of a sudden look off to the side and, you know, looking for lion tracks well we were driving the night before the night before the coyote competition wolf competition opened we drove down this road and i was looking for lion tracks the whole way down it and didn't didn't see didn't see any lion tracks so we went but we had located some coyotes so we're like oh we're gonna come back here then tomorrow morning well we we got up that morning headed out it was a, it was still like right at dusk or or dawn i guess and it was getting light and we're driving down the road and I seen a set of tracks crossing the road and I was like, man, those weren't there yesterday. Back up. And 
my buddy backed up and, and sure enough, there was a fresh set of wolf tracks crossing and we knew that they were only 12, under 12 hours old. Cause we just drove that night, that road the night before. And, uh, we ended up kind of following these wolf tracks up into this, um, big open draw of sagebrush. And we thought I had my buddy brand with me and he's actually, he's killed two or three wolves and he's killed, killed a couple of them calling, um, He's killed a couple of them just spot and stock. I mean, he's, he's like, he lives for wolf hunting. And so we got, we went, we kind of followed these tracks back, got set up in this area, set up just like we were going to set up for coyotes. And as we were setting up, we could hear this wolf howling probably six, 800 yards away. And, uh, he was just up on this point, just howling, just constantly, you know, just a lone male lost or looking for, looking for other wolves. And, um, I started calling and it was probably about 15 minutes into the set. And I was, I was basically calling like I was coyote calling, but I did throw in some coyote fights and just some, some different sounds. And sure enough, about the 20 minute mark, he came barreling down into us. And, uh, and I ended up, I, he, I ended up shooting him at about, I don't know, about 25 yards, just right. I mean, right at the call. It was, yeah, it was one of the coolest experiences ever. That's awesome. Uh, what is your go-to setup for shooting? Let's just say dogs in general, like what gun are you taking out there? What is it? What do you have it set up as? So if I'm just like, so basically I was coyote hunting that day. So I had, I had an AR, an AR 15, um, you know, shooting 50 grain ballistic tips suppressed. Um, that's what, that's my go-to coyote gun just cause you get quick follow-up shots. If you have more than one coyote, you know, chances are you're not going to be racking a bolt to shoot another one. You can be on one and then on another one. So that, that's what I really like for predator hunting is, uh, AR 15, you know, 50 grain ballistic tips. And that's what, that's what I ended up having when I called him in. Um, I had a brand new, uh, six, five Psalm that I had built sitting in my pickup. And for some reason, uh, I was just way more comfortable with the 223, so that's what I took. But um, yeah, that's that's what I use for pretty much all all predator hunt. I wouldn't recommend it for wolf hunting. Like if you're going to go out strictly hunting wolves, you should probably have, you know, some sort of six five caliber bigger. But that's kind of just what I had at the time, and wasn't even thinking when I left the pickup. Well, it worked out for you, <clears throat> and you would have been in a position to follow up if you needed to, although 25 yards, that's awesome. Uh, well, what do you think, what's worse on elk, man, wolves or cats? So I'm going to, I'm going to say probably, I would say probably wolves, but I am a cat hunter. And I'm, I mean, if you've ever met any houndsman that doesn't love the animal they pursue, then it's kind of a, he's probably a rare breed because mm -hmm. most of us, you know, we do it for the dogs and we do it for the enjoyment and we do it because we like seeing these, you know, magnificent animals. And so I might be a little bit biased towards cats a little bit, but I mean, cats do a fair number of damage on elk and wolves do a fair number of damage on elk. But I know that with the research that I've done, a lot of a lot more people tend to say that wolves will kill for sport opposed to kill for food where I've caught lions or 
or whatnot off of an elk kill and those lions come back until that elk is totally gone i mean you won't even you might be able to find a piece of the skull and then some hoofs i mean they eat everything they eat i mean they munch the bones clear down to nothing you know so yeah so they're they're not killing just for just to kill it and then leave half of it there or leave some of it there when when they kill an elk they're eating all of it but but when it comes down to it at the end of the day they both do their fair fair share of damage on elk yeah and i just think cats are just super efficient killers if not the most uh and i've i've got to lion hunt once and it was unbelievable uh up here in north idaho it was so memorable and uh i did put in for a non-resident hound handler permit one of my buddies has got dogs uh, in north idaho uh although you have dogs too so if i draw don't be surprised if i hit you up too uh, what is the rules on that like for like fishing games pretty strict on like 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 if let's just say i drew that hound handler permit as a non-resident that means i can hunt the you know with dogs They're, they don't have to be my dogs but i can't Dude, I can't pay you for your gas. I can't pay you for your time. You have to be doing it for purely the love of it or whatever it is that you're doing it. But you can't have any malintentions of making some sort of monetary gain. And Idaho Fishing Game is super strict on that. Um, have you had any run-ins with that? So I, I haven't had any run-ins with that because I'm like – I'm a by-the-book type person. Like, yes. Uh, it's it's – if, if it's not 100% legal, I'm not going to be doing it. And that's one of the biggest things. A lot of guys who have hounds, they take advantage of that in, in fishing game season. It kind of it puts a black eye on the houndsmen because there is a lot of guys that will say, hey, you know, come over and hunt with me. And then don't be afraid to leave, you know, a thousand bucks on my table when you leave or whatnot. Don't, don't actually give it to me. But if a thousand bucks just shows up there. It is what it is, you know. Yeah, man, just and be an so, outfitter if you're going to do that. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, it doesn't it doesn't do me any justice because I don't want to lose my hunt license. I don't want to lose my, yeah, I love hound hunting and I love to run bears and I love to run lions. But at the end of the day, when I'm shooting elk and deer and uh, antelope, that's what's putting food on my table. And so I'm not going to justify that or jeopardize that to – make a buck when I'm already out doing, I'm already out lion hunting. I'm already out bear hunting. I'm already out doing it because it's what I want to do. Not because I want to receive some sort of gain from it. Yeah. So the cats that you run, um, a matter of topography terrain. Um, when do you know it's a green light to let those dogs loose? Uh, so, so usually what we like to do, um, is any houndsman likes to hunt on at least, you know, three day old snow or less. Like once you get to that four day, five day old snow type stuff, not only is it hard to find a track because everything's usually all tracked up because the lions are down where the elk are and deer are during the winter time. Um, so it'll be all tracked up on three or four days. And so usually from three days, you know, fresh snowfall to three days is when it's the best hunting. And uh, what I usually end up doing, I either use a side-by-side -side or a snow machine and you basically just have to drive roads. You have to drive, you know, road after road after road until you, until you cut a cat track. And there's, there's been some days where, I mean, I'll go out and I'll spend 
you know, 200 bucks in fuel between putting fuel in my pickup and then putting fuel in the snow machine and oil. And you might drive, you know, 200 miles and never cut a lion track, never cut, you know, a runnable lion track. And so, I mean, you just basically got to be persistent. You got to, you got to just keep checking. You got to keep checking Canyon after Canyon until you uh, find a fresh one to run. And once, once you find one, you know, you obviously have to read the track, especially if you're hunting on a little bit older snow, if you're hunting on up to three day old snow, you've got to kind of read it and see if you can figure out when that line did cross is the bottom of the track frozen is the side of the tracks frozen. Did the line walk up on a hillside that had some sunlight on it? So you got a little bit of, you know, icicles in the bottom of the track. You basically have to read the track and see how old it is. Cause there's, there's some guys that have some dogs that'll, that'll catch a, catch a lion that's two days old. Say that you cut it on a Saturday and the line crossed through there on a Thursday. But a lot of the time, by the time you find that two day old track, and you've only got, you know, eight, eight hours of light in the wintertime, <laughs> even if you do turn loose on it, you're going to be, you know, getting to the tree at dark, or you're going to be pulling dogs off, you know, five miles later, six miles later, and they're still going to be working the track, but they just haven't caught it yet. Yep. Man, that's a lot of balancing. Uh, and you can't let your dogs loose uh, unless it's daylight, correct? Right. Yep. It's the same as hunting hours 30 minutes before light and 30 minutes after dark so so yeah if you get to a tree and say you know it took you all day to hike there and you get there at last sun last sunset was 5 30 and so you can hunt till 6 and you get there at 601 and can still see the line up in the tree you're out of you're out of hunting light Mm -hmm. you take the dogs and leave yep okay copy that how many dogs do you run so I, I run three right now is uh three is a pretty good number for me. It's, it's a little bit light for bears. Like you, you might get on a bad bear, you know, a big bear that doesn't, doesn't want a tree. And so, so, um, those bears usually take about, you know, some of them take four to five dogs, but I'm running three right now. And then when I was back in Nebraska last week, I just picked up a, another pup. So he's 12 weeks old. So oh. I will have four coming into this next, next line season. What's his name? Uh, Rogue. Rogue. Perfect. Yep. Uh, all right. Well, let's finish up talking about running bears, man. I've never done it. Um, although I live for spring bear hunting. It's my second favorite hunt of the year. Elk, obviously number one, but bear, spring bear, way up there. I love watching the mountains come alive. I, I've killed several over bait, but in the last probably five or six years, I, I don't think I have. It's been all spot and stock. I love it all, but um, I think running, running bears would be cool too. Uh, how do you guys cut the track? Do you set up your own bait so you got some bears in a known area, or do you just drive roads? Um, obviously. A lot of times there's not snow in the spring. So how are you doing it? Um, so mainly it's baiting. So, yep, we'll, we'll do just like what, what you've done in the past. You know, you'll set a bait and basically throw a camera up on it. And once you start getting bears hitting, uh, whether it's April 30th or June 1st, you know, depending on where you're at and the snow conditions in that area, as soon as you get bears starting to hit, then, you know, you, the bears are usually pretty nocturnal. They're usually hitting from five in the morning or, you know, eight at night till five in the morning, something like that. And so 
basically just show up at the bait at legal light, whatever, whatever time that ends up being, check the camera. And then if there's been a bear there in the last eight hours, um, turn the dogs loose, the dogs go to the bait and basically work the track from there and, and run the bear. Gotcha. So are bears, I would assume bears can probably put up quite the chase compared to a, like, I'm just like from a physiological standpoint, it seems like bears would have more endurance than a cat, but I could be wrong. No, no, that's, that's a hundred percent correct. And I've, I've oftentimes said that you could probably catch a cat with like a, a black lab just because <laughs> I mean, as, yeah, as soon as, as soon as the dogs are on them and a cat, hears a dog barking, they've got, you know, big body with lots of muscle mass, but they have little tiny lungs. So, I mean, they can usually only make it if a cat's running their hardest, they can usually only make it like two to 300 yards before they have to climb a tree, you know, just because they're out of breath or whatnot. A bear, totally different story. I mean, they're, they're like fit athletes. I mean, and, and if you have a bear that doesn't want to be caught, you're not going to catch him. Really? Yeah. If you have, and, and I call them, I call them Nike bears. They're (laughs) They're these bears that they're like from the four and a half or, you know, three and a half year olds to like five and a half where they're just in like prime condition for their life. You know, they're, they're just like young athletes. And if they don't want to be caught, you're not going to catch them. Like it, it doesn't matter how good of dogs you have or, or what the situation is. Um, they are literally going to run and not climb a tree until they do not have a dog following them anymore. That's incredible. Yeah. And, and I mean, you've seen, you've seen where we were elk hunting in the country. I mean, I've had dogs go over that range where we were into the very next range to the West and, you know, have to drive. The oh my gosh. Around. Yeah. Have to drive the pickup around and then come, you know, 70 miles up the other range to try to catch dogs that are still on a bear that has made it up and over the top of, you know, basically at 10,000 foot peak. And yeah, if they, if they don't want to be caught, you're probably not catching them. Dude, that's so impressive to me to even go up over a range like that is just unbelievable. Uh, bears are fascinating to me. They, they have a great lifespan. They could survive in almost any condition, actually thrive. Bears are incredible. Um, and they live a long time and there's a surplus of them for sure. You know, they're not going anywhere. I would be worried to invite you to come up and run bears in my neck of the woods just because of the wolves. Have you ran into wolves at all with your dogs? Oh, so I, I have actually, I've never ran into wolves. Um, most of the, like I say, most of the country that I hunt is, is fairly wolf free right now, even though there is, is some wolves coming in into it, but there's a spot right above my house. And, uh, there, there's a lot of hound hunters that hunt it. It's, it's one of the places where you don't really have to bait. You can just, uh, there's a lot of roads in it. So you can put the dogs up on top of the box and Mm -hmm. you can drive these roads. And then when the dogs smell a bear, they bark on top of the dog box, they call it rigging and they basically are rigging this bear and then you turn them loose. So there, there's a lot of roads up there and, but there's also some really, um, wooded, areas well there there was a pack of wolves up there and they were like damage on hound dogs i think 
I think in one season, like a spring to fall season, those wolves killed like 10 or 12 hound dogs. Mm. And I mean, this, this is like right out my back window. I'm looking, I'm looking at the mountain range right now as we're talking. And, uh, then there was, you know, they killed like one or two dogs, um, the next year and they'd killed one or two dogs previous. So this one pack of wolves had killed like probably like 15 or probably at least 15 dogs, maybe more in just like a, a two year period. And, and it was an area that I hunted for quite a while, but I mean, as soon as all those dogs start, start getting killed, it was, it was almost one of those things that when you turn your dogs loose, you would get an uneasy feeling about it. Mm -hmm. And, and no, nobody likes that. Like as much as you like to catch bears or catch big bears or whatnot, nobody wants to put those dog's life in jeopardy. Mm -mm. No, man. Freaks me out. Um, all right. Two more questions. Oh, hold on. Uh, two more questions for you. Um, antelope. Do you prefer spot and stock with a bow or do you prefer sitting a blind over water? Man, that's, that, that's a tough one because I've killed, I've killed antelope both ways. And for me at this point in my life, um, sit in a water hole is probably overall the best. Um, just for the fact that I've got little kids and every year my kids are super excited to go sit in a antelope ground blind with me. I mean, they're like, you know, a month before the season, they're asking, Hey, when's antelope season start? When's antelope season start? And I mean, that's why I'm preferring a ground blind right now because it's a spot. It's a, it's a place where you can take kids and they can sit in a blind with you and you can set up a little tablet or you can do whatever to keep them busy. Cause I mean, we're talking long day sits, 12, 12, 13 hours, you know, cause the days are so long. And, uh, so, so yeah, as of right now, I prefer, I prefer that just cause it's time that I can spend with my boys and kind of see the excitement on their face. And, and they actually were with me last year when I, when I killed one of my, my, well, it is my best bucket. It's a 76 inch, um, buck and nice. they were actually sitting in the ground blind with me. Got to watch him come into the water hole. Got to watch, you know, everything go down. Got to watch the arrow go through him and the antelope take off running. And yeah, it was, it was just one of those things that it's, you know, there's nothing better than having your kids with you when something like that happens. Oh, I can't wait for that. That's so cool. Okay. Last question. Um, should Idaho have a shed, a dedicated shed season in your opinion? Yes. Well, I think 100% they should have a dedicated shed season and they should manage it. And that's, that's probably the biggest thing is the, I think even if they did have a shed season, they probably wouldn't manage it as well as what they should. Because as of right now, we have areas right above my house that are big time winter, wintering areas, you know, elk and deer come from miles to, to winter there. And what they have in place right now is they have a no human entry. So basically from December 15th to April 15th, these areas are no human entry. You can't drive the roads in there. You can't walk in there. You can't hunt lions in there. You can't do anything in there. And the reason that they put these no human entries on was because of the shed hunters. They were, they were tired of shed hunters going in from, 
January clear to April, you know, watching the deer, watching the elk, putting pressure on them um, when they really shouldn't have pressure on them when they're trying to, you know, just survive winter. So they put these, they put these no human entry areas in place, but then they don't manage them. So the guys who um, are by the book type guys that, you know, have jobs that they, that they can't afford to lose or whatnot, they stay out of those areas and they obey the rules. But the guys who maybe own their own business or, you know, don't care about basically getting a, you know, $200 ticket for, for entering a no human entry area, those guys are still going in. They're still picking up sheds. And then once April 15th comes and all of us, you know, normal guys who obey the law and do everything by the book, we go in, all we run into is boot tracks and, mm. you know, uh, no sheds. And so I would like to see them do it, but I would also like to see them enforce it. it. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. All right, man. I, I could talk to you for another hour. So that means I'm bringing you back on Jake at a future date. If you're down, I love talking to you. I remember when I met you, I was like, I just knew I had to have you on the podcast. You were my kind of people. Um, what's your Instagram? I want everyone to follow it. Um, so my Instagram is ascent, A-S-C-N-T underscore outdoors. And it's just basically, it's, it's hunting, hunting content. You know, it's, it's my adventures with elk hunting, antelope hunting, bear, lion hunting, coyote hunting. And, and I do, I post quite a bit about my boys on there. You know, they're good. They're, they're always out with me and, uh, you know, always out wanting to have a good time. My, my nine or my soon to be nine year old tomorrow, he's, his new fascination is coyote hunting. And, and so it's like every weekend we're going coyote hunting and, and it, it won't be long before he gets one. He's had some opportunities and he's, he's missed some, you know, close shots of called in coyotes, just, you know, trying to get everything figured out with the, with the buck fever and, and the shooting and everything like that. And so, so that will be something to look forward to on there. You know, hope, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, hopefully I can, finally get him as his first coyote and, and uh yeah there's there's a bunch of good content on there yeah i i love following your page and um you just you're dude you're the real deal there i wish there was more people like you so keep up the good work jake uh, thanks for taking time to chat with me i got your number we'll stay in touch and uh, i will bring you back on at a later date guys thanks for listening to the elk shape podcast there were some really good nuggets in here for some different style of elk tactics. I hope you took notes. I appreciate you. Remember, separation is in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Jake, thanks for your time. Uh, man, if I get that lion permit, I'm coming down to chase cats with you for sure. Want to get some shout outs before we go off the air. Vortex Optics, thank you for the support of this podcast. You guys are awesome. Vortex Wear, get 20% off by using the discount code ElkShape, and that's on all their apparel. Hashtag fit for anywhere. Check it out. Wilderness Athlete, ElkShape30 will get you 30% off your first purchase. Uh, I take the Hydrate Recover, the Multi Energy and Focus, the Premier, uh, their Premium Protein, their meal replacements. They have fish oil. Check them out. Super awesome brand. Not a marketing company. They are a truly a supplement company backed by Mark Paulson, a lifetime strength and conditioning coach. Northwest Retention, you can get the chest holster with Elk Shape logo on it. Go to their website, find the Elk Shape holster. No shipping and handling. 
and you don't have to put in any codes. Stowaway Gourmet, if you're buying your freeze-dried meals for next season, check them out. They're the best tasting. It's real food made by real chefs. Discount code is ELK10, and you will get 10% off. Black Ovis, discount code ELKSHAPE will save you 15 to 20% on select items. If it doesn't work, then pick up the phone and call them and tell them you're an Elk Shape podcast listener. Lakewood Products makes an awesome bow case. I had someone message me recently. Is there still a discount code? There is for the rest of this month. It's Elk Shape 2020. You'll get 10% off. Climate Sleep Systems, discount code Elk Shape 20 will get you 20% off. And finally, back to e-bikes, Elk Shape 400 will save you $400 on the e-bike, which would come in very handy for elk hunting. Trust me, you guys have a lot of choices when it comes to podcasts. Thanks for picking this one. And remember, separation is in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one.